an agricultural empire, the fulfillment of the dreams of pioneers, unexcelled in beauty, rich in achievement, and still offering a challenge mighty as the mountains. This is our Northwest Empire. I'm Felix Bunnell, resident historian for Cairo Radio, heard with Dave Ross Wednesdays and Fridays on Seattle's Morning News. On this episode of the Resident Historian Podcast, the Peace Arch turns 100 this summer, but the pandemic centennial is not exactly what anyone expected. This whole pandemic has just reacquainted people with their park. It has brought people to come to understand it that just thought it was an extension of the border. And then, from the archives, remembering TV legend J.P. Patches on the anniversary of the passing of Chris Wiedis. But first, let's go all over the map. In the nation's northwest corner is Washington. Our resident historian Felix Spinell joins us Friday mornings for All Over the Map, which is a quick look at the stories behind local places and things. And this week, two invisible lines cross in the hills west of Portland that surveyors have used for 170 years to map all the real estate, not just in Oregon, but in Washington. Yeah, we're talking about the Willamette Meridian. I know, not exactly a household name. It runs north to south, and the Willamette Baseline, which runs east to west. These are the X and Y axes. They're invisible, of a giant invisible grid. They cross in a monument called the Willamette Stone, which is located in Oregon State Park, northwest of Portland. Uh, I looked on the map. It's about a seven-minute drive from Powell's down there in downtown Portland. Now, Dan Klug is a head interpretive ranger. He knows more about the Willamette Meridian than just about anyone. It's a basis for all survey that was done in Oregon and Washington in the 1850s and then successive dates as well. And to this day, everything is based off of the Willamette Meridian and its counterpart, which is the baseline. The Meridian runs uh, north and south from a point in the West Hills of Portland where they originated it. And it runs north to the Puget Sound and south to the California border. I have to emphasize it is invisible. Don't go looking for it out there in your backyard. Now, it was on June 1st, 1851, when a crew working for the um, first surveyor general of Oregon hammered in a wooden stake to mark that origin point for the meridian and the baseline. And coincidentally, the permanent stone was installed in 1885, which is 136 years ago this Sunday, July 25th. Now, this is part of what's known as the rectangular land surveying system that dates to 1785 in the Articles of Confederation. Oregon Territory became part of the U.S. in 1848, Settlers were arriving and claiming land under the Donation Land Act of 1850, and there had to be some universal recognized system to keep track of who had claimed what. Now, this is, of course, the notion of land ownership was totally foreign to the indigenous peoples here, and struggles over the land would lead to treaty wars, uh, the struggles over land about those restrictive covenants, all those things, the DNA of of all that stuff is in this Willamette Meridian, Willamette Baseline. Now, meridians and baselines are also part of that system of township and range, you know, those are the squares within those big grids um, marked out on that giant invisible grid. So if you own real estate in Washington or Oregon, the legal description probably includes the name of who created the subdivision or so-and-so's plat or whatever. But it also has language. It's probably similar to where we are right now at the radio station, which would be Township 25 North, Range 4 East of the Willamette Meridian. And sometimes in the legal paperwork, it's just abbreviated as WM. But it's all there. I mean, this all dates back to this June 1st, 1851 these guys walking through the woods and hammering this wooden stake. And there's about 37 of these other meridians in the United States. Um, the Willamette was the first one to be laid out west of the Rockies. And depending on what source you look at, it was either the 15th or the 17th one overall. Other ones nearby are the Boise uh, meridian over in Idaho and the Humboldt one in North Cal- uh, Northern California. 
So I talked to a surveyor yesterday named Bob Winters of a place called Chadwick and Winters, and he told me the Willamette Meridian, it's still a thing for surveyors. It's not some ancient piece of distant history. It's, you know, it's a fact of life for them every day. Heard the same thing from the King County Assessor's Office. This is just something that, huh. though it's invisible, though it's been there 170 years, it's the backbone of everything that Western society and Western civilization built here in the Northwest. It all goes back to these guys in the woods with their chains and their early uh, surveying instruments marking out the future of the Northwest. So what if somebody just stole that wooden stake in the dead of night and made off with it? Well, you know, what that, would happen? <laughs> that wooden, that the actual the, con- the stone that was installed in 1885, that's long gone. It got broken off. So if you go to that little park, there's just a flat spot in the ground where they put in a, a, a metal benchmark. And there's some other interpretive panels and stuff. And you have to sort of, there's two kinds of people, Dave. You either love maps or you don't care about them. And I guess uh-huh. you could probably guess which camp I'm, I'm in. Well, I know. It's just that I, I would hate to think that my title to this property depends on some little flat space down in Oregon. Well, see, you have to that use your... isn't even guarded. <laughs> but you have to use your imagination because now the imaginary grid has been in place for I so see. long. You look on maps, you'll see township and range. It all goes back to this single little spot west of Portland. Felix Bunnell. Thanks, Felix. Thanks, Dave. Serving greater Seattle. Almost the Canadian National Anthem. (laughs) The border between the U.S. and Canada is scheduled to reopen to fully vaccinated Americans on August 9th. And when it does, standing watch over the crossing at Blaine that day, as it has for almost exactly a century, will be the Peace Arch. Our resident historian Felix Bunnell tells us how the centennial celebration plans have evolved for this monument. And Felix is brought to us by Lake Washington Windows and Doors. Hi, Felix. Morning, Dave. Yeah, everybody knows the Peace Arch. It's at Blaine on the U.S. side, but it actually straddles the border. One leg is also in Surrey on the Canada-British Columbia side. It's surrounded by a lush state park and provincial park that also straddles the border. Now, the monument commemorates the 1814 Treaty of Ghent, which ended the War of 1812 and which set the course for joint occupation of the old Oregon country by the U.S. and British, though indigenous people, of course, had no say in the matter. And it pays tribute to the thousands of miles of undefended border between the U.S. and Canada. Um, It's a 67-foot-tall monument. The idea came uh, for it from the industrialist and good roads promoter Samuel Hill. He's the guy who built those other big concrete monuments. Uh, You might heard of the Mary Hill Museum Mm -hmm. or the Stonehenge replica over there near Goldendale. Now, the Peace Arch was delayed by World War I, and then came the Spanish flu pandemic, but it was finally dedicated with a series of events on September 6, 1921. That's almost exactly 100 years ago. Now, it was built at Blaine because that's where the border is, of course, and Blaine's where the railroad between Canada and Washington went through in 1891, and where the highway was also dedicated in 1921. Now, there's been a, bi- a number of big events there over the years. There was a big celebration in June 1946 that marked the centennial of the treaty that set the border at the 49th parallel. That, to me, is a perfect excuse to play some old newsreel sound. Ceremonies at Blaine, Washington, on the border of the Canadian province of British Columbia, mark the centennial of the signing of the Boundary Treaty between the United States and England. Canadians and Yanks have a cordial get-together at the massive Peace Arch, which commemorates the signing and the 100 years of friendly relations between the good neighbors. A symbol of faith and fairness between two peoples helping to promote the quest for global peace. I love love the finale sound of the music Mm. there. Now, there would have been a lot of reasons to have newsreels like that the past year, leading up to September 6th with the official 100th anniversary, but like so many things, um, those centennial plants have evolved. 
Now, the Monument's greatest champion is a woman named Christina Winkler. She lives nearby, and she's president of the nonprofit International Peace Arch Association. I first met her five years ago when we did a story about the border concerts that actor and labor activist Paul Robeson did at the Peace Arch in the early 1950s. You know, Christina Winkler sees a silver lining in all of this, uh, all the stuff that's gone on in the past year and a half. It is, in all honesty, the most visible, most known, and yet underinterpreted international historic site in North America. And so uh, this whole pandemic has just reacquainted people with their park. It has brought people to come to understand it that just thought it was an extension of the border. And so the pandemic itself has done such a great job in, in informing people about their park. Yeah, so I don't know if this is exactly a paradox, but, you know, what she's referring to there, and I'm sure you've heard these stories this past year about couples and families from Canada and the U.S. meeting up there. Mm-hmm. You know, the unique configuration means people from both countries could mix and meet up in that park in spite of the border closure. And it does say on the monument, along with sort of some symbols, may these gates never close. So for Christina Winkler, who lives and breathes all things Peace Arch, it made a particular impact, and it made her cry more times than she can count. I've met people from as far away as Florida who have flown in just to meet their family in the park. If you were to walk on one of the, the weekends in the last two or three months, you basically would see every culture you could imagine. You would see people with different faith backgrounds, different colors, and everybody coming together for one reason, and that's family. And it, it just has been one of the most beautiful experiences that I, you know, who's personally um, has been a part of the parks, volunteering at the park for the last 25 years, to actually see the best of humanity happening right in front of you. Yeah, so sort of unanticipated way the Peace Arch has served us during the pandemic. Now, humanity means a lot of grandparents and grandkids meeting for the first time, a lot of weddings. Um, For history's sake, Christina Winkler wants to create a registry of all the weddings that have happened there during the pandemic. Nobody was keeping track. Nobody was making anybody register. Um, you know, there was also probably the isolated conjugal visit there, too. Um, kids, ask mom and dad what that means. Now, um, the Peace Arch means a lot to Christina Winkler, and we're all the better for her dogged drive and determination to honor and commemorate it. In some ways, she's paying the Peace Arch back for what it did for her a quarter century ago. It has been my passion, and it has been um, I, it, un, unintended. A, a kind of, I, I went in to organize the 75th anniversary uh, two weeks after it happened, um, my eldest child was killed by a drunk driver on his bicycle. And so somehow this Peace Arch stuff kept things to do, starting a sculpture exhibit and, and uh, these going from where we were, it just came natural and that somehow it helped heal my heart. And so every day that I can bring good into the world is a, is a, is a wonderful day. Yeah, and so oddly enough, you know, Christina Winkler credits the pandemic for making happen just what she wanted to happen. That's people on both sides of the border to intentionally visit, to spend time, and to make meaningful and lasting memories of the Peace Arch. Memories that are more than just driving by in bumper-to-bumper traffic and waiting to get through customs. It's not just learning about a piece of history and going, oh, well, that's interesting, gee. It's their personal story. It's exciting to think of where we can go with all um, of, of the good for that park and for our relationship with Canada that has come out of this. It, it, we truly, truly are some of the most blessed people in the world to share our border, to share our families, and to share our park with each other. 
Absolutely. You know, and thinking about this in the future, all those hundreds, if not thousands of people who have had these very special memories in that park because of what we've been you know, going through the last year and a half, completely unanticipated, but really uh, you couldn't have designed a better centennial commemoration of what the Peace Arch stands for than how it's functioned that way. I mean, it's, it's really incredible. And um, you know, there will be some kind of modest commemoration this year on September 6th. You, you have to do something on that actual 100th birthday. But Christina Winkler hopes to plan a full season of events for the year ahead, sort of replicate what would have happened for the past year and kind of get back on track with, with a Peace Arch that has newfound significance for so many people. I didn't realize it was being used that way. So this is where people, it is, it's yeah. what, like a demilitarized zone where yeah, exactly. uh, despite like, the ban on travel to Canada, you could still freely mingle with people in the park. Yeah, like a duty-free area for yeah. affection and love for families and grandkids and grandparents and couples. I mean, it's just this amazing. And it was closed for a while for stretches. Both parks were closed early in the pandemic, so it wasn't always possible. But by late spring and most of summer last year, it was this thing where anybody, like, like, like Christina said, people flying from Florida and arranging with Canada's on, relatives on the north side of the border yeah. to come and meet at the Peace Arch Park. Completely unanticipated, but just a really cool piece of history. And to Christina's credit, doing this job, I get to meet people like her who have spent so much of their lives devoted to the history and upkeep of these historical monuments. And to get to spend time with her and then share her story, I mean, this is perfect for me. This is, this is a perfect week for me. Good. Well, I'm glad that someone's feeling uh, optimistic this week. Yeah, it's, uh, there's always space, Dave. That's right. That's what I've forgotten. There is always space. Our uh, resident historian, Felix Bunnell, all his features, by the way, in case you miss any part of them, are at MyNorthwest.com. Thanks, Felix. Thanks, Dave. For this is Cairo where modern adventure and intrigue unfold against a backdrop of antiquity. For this edition of From the Archives, TV clown J.P. Patches was played by Chris Wiedis. When Wiedis passed away in July 2012, I spoke about his life and legacy with John Curley. This is the John Curley Show. On News Talk 97.3. Cairo FM. Welcome back, everybody, to the John Curley Show. Thanks so much for tuning in. Uh, the news I heard yesterday around 4.30 in the afternoon, Yvonne over at King TV called me or, yeah, called me and said, have you heard... Because Como is telling everybody that J.P. Patches has passed away. And I wasn't able to confirm it, so I got Felix, uh, Felix Pennell, my buddy, my historian, writer, and producer, who I've known since the Museum of History and Industry, when EV Magazine used to be on the air. Is it still on the air? I haven't checked, is it? I don't know. And uh, so I wrote you, Felix, and you wrote me back, and you said, My God, I hope it is not true. I spoke to him on Tuesday. I wouldn't be surprised. He seems very, very sick. Yeah. Uh, with the passing of J.P. Patches, known as uh, uh, J.P., and also to uh, friends who is Chris Wiedis for so many years. You talked to uh, Chris. You talked to J.P. on Tuesday. Is that right? No, actually, it was a couple weeks ago I talked to him. I had a short conversation. Then I was out of town for a while, and I had uh, some other stuff I was doing. And I called him on Tuesday. He wasn't there, and I said I would call back. I didn't call back. He didn't call me back. And so I did talk to him about a month ago, and he sounded very, very ill. But he, mm-hmm. I talked to him after that, and he sounded better. But obviously... He had a terminal illness, and it was it was reaching its end. And so we knew this day was going to come, but I sure wasn't prepared for it. Yeah. Hey, Felix, what um, what does this passing mean, and what what is the legacy of? And it just seems so silly on the surface if somebody were just tuning in and not from this area. They're like, wait, you guys are talking about a guy that dressed up like a clown and was on television? Oh, really? Yeah. Is that- and, and I've tried to explain this to you know either friends from out of town or my uh, my my some in laws I have from out of town, and it's just. They kind of look at me and they scratch their head because the reality is every city, every region in the United States, starting back in the 1950s, 
had a TV clown. Uh-huh. But only Seattle had J.P. Patches. Mm-hmm. And J.P. transcended the medium. I mean, because he was, I mean, you, you knew him personally. He yeah. was smart. He was funny, yeah. fun to work with. Yeah. He was curious about stuff. He knew what was going on in current events. You could talk to him about anything. Yeah. And so he brought this incredibly sharp mind to this, these daily live programs, and they were hysterical, and they were topical. They were funny for kids, just mm-hmm. on a basic level. But the grown-ups, there was sort of, I would call it sort of gentle double entendre in there. He wasn't, wasn't doing like anything blue or anything dirty, but there were sort of these, kind of these knowing kind of winks at the adult audience as well. And so it worked for kids. It worked for grown-ups. Now, he did the show in, I think, Minnesota or something like that, or somewhere in the Midwest. Yeah, the Twin Cities. Yeah, Twin Cities. He, yeah. I they either fired him or he left. He came here to Seattle. Um, so he had a history. But Gertrude, I understand, who was his partner in this whole mix, um, was actually a, was a floor director or somebody that was running cameras? I think he was just some kind of a tech doing, like, something in the background. And one day, you know, J.P. had this character he would pretend to talk to on the phone, this phone operator named yeah. Gertrude. And say, uh-huh. oh, so, Gertrude, it's J.P. here. What's going on? And one day, Newman just called back with his high-pitched voice saying, like, oh, it's Julius. Oh. And they right away the character was born, and, and Newman became this performer who did about a dozen different roles, all very different, all really memorable, all really intense. It's mm-hmm. just it's rare that you had that much talent on a local show. That's why J.P. was memorable, because people cared about him. I, I think he was more popular, more beloved after he went off the air than he was when he was on the air. How do you explain that, Felix? You know, I don't know if you can really explain that other than the fact that, you know, Chris is naturally just really talented and very charismatic and really he loved what he was doing. He mm-hmm. cared about everybody. It wasn't fake. There's no Jekyll and Hyde thing. If you met Chris in person and spent any time with him, you realize, God, the, the clown thing on TV, that's just the, the surface. Yeah. Below it, it's, it's, it's all real. And then, I don't know, the fact that his career was timed so well to the rise of local television in the 50s and 60s mm-hmm. and then to the demise of, of the kind of local programming that, that his show epitomized – when that went away, there was no place for him to go, right? Yeah. But for whatever reason, because yeah. that maybe that baby boomer nostalgia wave, maybe just Chris's amazing amount of talent, he was kind of rediscovered back in the late 80s and early 90s and started doing all these personal appearances. Yeah, I had him for my, I think my mom, my mother-in-law turned, I think might have been 50. Yeah. And uh, she's a huge J.P. Patches fan. I wanted to get her on the air and talk to her about it, but I was afraid she started crying. Yeah. And, uh... I was like, yeah, hey, J.P., can, uh, Chris, can you do a, yeah, sure, where do you need, I said, we're going to, they're all going to be down at Anthony's, like 25 women and everything. Oh, yeah, sure, sure. So he shows up, got the whole makeup on and everything. 500 bucks he charged. <laughs> is, that, is that a good deal or what do you think? I don't know. That? I was shocked. I was <laughs> like, okay, and that'll be how much? $500. I was like, $500. Sure. And apparently it was his act. I'm not saying was totally, but it was a more than a double entendre on some of the stuff. But well, yeah, when there's no when it's not on TV, I mean, there's no FCC <laughs> right. around. I'm not saying, right. you know, yeah, right. The ladies loved him for it. Yeah, he was he was br- just a brilliant entertainer. He would have succeeded in any medium if he'd been on network radio, if he'd done a, a national TV show. I think he would have been successful because he was just a skilled performer. I mean, you know what it's like to connect with an audience. You know, you have to think about who your audience is and what they want to hear, and sort of package yourself. Hold on, slow down. Let me write these down. What do yeah, you do okay. again? Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, we'll, What's we'll, the first thing you have to do? In our next therapy session, you come sit down. We'll spend 90 minutes next time. All right, time well, let me just, I, in the remaining minutes, what's your one of your favorite clips? We'll play it for you here on the air. Oh, it's hard to pick uh, any any clip with J.P. and Gertrude where it's just Chris Wiedis and Bob Newman. Just, you know, they, they showed up for work that morning. They had no idea what they were going to do. There's no script. There's no showrunner deciding that which part of the plot is going to happen today. I mean, uh-huh. that all that children's workshop, children's television workshop stuff was just, Nowhere near what was going on at Cairo back when J.P. and, and, 
and uh, Gertrude were on the air. So, and I, I, I listen. I think it was the lightning in the bottle when you do stuff live, and when anything can happen. And if you have people that know how to perform, you just let it go. And I'm sure some days it didn't work, but most of the time it did work. And at least people appreciated the fact that it was organic and, and it was real. But there's more to it than that. I mean, because again, every city had the same kind of thing, mm -hmm. but in no other city. And I've I've researched this. I've talked to other people. Nowhere else did the did the stars of the show kind of continue to ascend after the show went off the air and create this just you can you can feel the heartache in Seattle today. Mm -hmm. Almost everybody's brokenhearted about the fact that JP's gone. Yeah, I mean it's just again, and nowhere else is it like that. This is we need to realize all these big Seattle things that are popular around the world, like Starbucks and Boeing and Microsoft. Yeah, JP didn't translate beyond here. So beyond the beyond the range of the Cairo TV transmitter, that's where JP's understood and loved. You mm. go outside the area. No one knows what you're talking about. I think that's kind of special. Yeah. Wow, Felix, that's an interesting spin on it. Well, thanks. We appreciate your time. Hey, anytime. Sorry about the loss of your friend. Thanks, John. I appreciate it. I'm Felix Bonnell at Cairo Radio in Seattle. Follow me on Twitter and read my stories and see my photo galleries at MyNorthwest.com. And please join me again for the next episode of The Resident Historian. This has been World's Fair Newswire, a last-minute report on progress of the Seattle World's Fair, prepared by World's Fair News in Seattle.